And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Um, as always, Gina is here, or I should say, returning Gina after a week away, basking in the sunlight of uh, West Lothian. How are you, Gina? Uh, tanned and refreshed <laughs> <laughs> from the Costa del West Lothian. Yes, um, <laughs> it was a very good week to be off weather-wise. It was, it was great to be out in the garden, to, I, pottering I, about. I was going to say, I have to say, we joke about Costa del, you know, East Coast or whatever, but yesterday it absolutely was stunning on Sunday. Um, I was out at Yellow Craig Beach for the whole day, basking <gasps> in Mediterranean weather. It was gorgeous. Yeah, that takes me back to my childhood. Yellow Craig was always <laughs> the, the beach of choice. Um, yeah, I know it, the weather has was fabulous and it was great just to... To, to be off and to catch up with family now that we were allowed to do that and um and yeah and just to be around and not working and not had, had all my <laughs> notifications switched off um so i'm not entirely sure what we're going to talk about today connor because only you know what's been happening <laughs> absolutely well you've you've usurped somebody else who uh, was in your place last week <laughs> <laughs> somebody let's not somebody. mention him by name because he seemed to forget mine <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a we're we're recording this approximately. Just going to do the math: three and a half hours prior to the event of the century um, at two <laughs> if p.m. You're a, if you're a Scotland if fan, anyway. <laughs> if you're a football fan, um, Scotland play the Czech Republic at two p.m. today. We don't know the result because we haven't seen it yet. It's not happened, um, but that'll be probably the biggest story to come out today, regardless of um, anything else. I think there's a few political journalists already who've uh, begged the Scottish government and other parties to just not put out any press releases no no stories no yeah. nothing just leave us leave us to it for 2 hours a, a good news a good day for bad news day mm. for for government <laughs> i would i would say if they were trying to sneak something out and we're all um, hugely distracted by events at hamden but um it's very exciting I mean, I, I understand there'll be lots of people not interested in, in football. I couldn't care less, really. But um, the Euros are always a fabulous tournament. So to be mm. involved in them, to be there and uh, as a country is, is fantastic. And I think after the year that we've all had, it's just quite nice um, to feel uh, cheery about something. <laughs> We'll see what the result is. We'll see what yeah. the result is. If we get out the group eventually. But, you know, um, at the minute, everything's rosy in the garden. <laughs> I was going to say, a 3-0 defeat to the Czech Republic might put some dampeners on it. But mm. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. I mean, it, well, let's talk about the political aspect of this. You know, we, we had it confirmed, I think, over the weekend that 
all of the attendees to the Glasgow fan zone are going to get posted lateral flow tests. Um, it was interesting, actually. I, I, it, I saw our colleague, Brian Ferguson, who, who covers art, um, complaining on Twitter about the fact that this event, you know, 3,000 people outside um, has been deemed low risk, but there's no, as yet, um, seeming uh, relaxation of the rules around arts and theatre. And I do think that this is probably something that's going to rumble on for the next couple of weeks. We've got the great reopening um, potentially being delayed down south. But um, I was also talking to a friend over the weekend about the fringe. There's a lot of things that are very dependent on on the next few months. I don't know how you see things falling by the end of the month. I don't think there's another COVID-19 update in Scotland until the 21st of June. Yeah, I think um, I think the government will be crossing everything to make sure that these this fan zone that has been established in Glasgow goes without a hitch and that there isn't a sudden massive surge in, in cases because um, you're quite right, there are other um, areas of Scotland like the arts and culture who are desperate to get going again, who are hampered by the social distancing rules um, and all that kind of thing. And I think they will be looking upon this and thinking it's not fair and it's one rule for for football and sport and another rule for them. And there'll be a lot of businesses obviously thinking much the same, particularly in the hospitality industry. But I I, I do think um, there is a there is always a, a balance to be struck, isn't there? Now, goodness, now I'm sounding like a politician myself, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it is that thing. It's like you know that people will want to congregate because this is a huge event, first time Scotland have been in the Euros or any major tournament for 23 years. So it's, you know, they want to congregate. So do you um, give them a place to do that and make sure it's as safe as possible? Then, you know, you think, yes, that's probably a wiser thing to do than just letting people organize themselves and all ending up in their pal's house you know 50 folk there and you know what whatever but I think it's not hard to see why that feels unfair to other other industries um and I think the government will absolutely be hoping against hope that there isn't a a rise in, in cases after this and also because that will then impact on you know the culture industry as well because if there's another rise in cases with that it'll definitely be a no-no in terms of what they'll be allowed to do going forward um and uh, the other thing of course you know the government has come in for criticism on this and i think possibly rightly is they've acted very slowly about making sure people are tested before you know they, they arrive at this fan zone and they can prove you know that they have a negative test and it all feels a bit ad hoc and whereas i think down south certainly um around people attending games and things it's much more seems to be much more uh, well prepared and planned and have to produce negative test results and so on before they can get in. So um, I can understand why people have, have criticised the, the government on that. But um, yeah, I think, fingers crossed, you know, it's going to be as safe as it can be. But, you know, they will get so many brickbats if it goes wrong. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it's it's interesting you mentioned Dan South because I was watching um, the cricket over the weekend um, watching England do their usual hideous display in front of fans at home. Um, but they, they were playing Edgbaston in Birmingham and that's one of the UK government's big test events. It was about 18,000 fans. I mean, Edgbaston's not huge, it's 25,000 capacity. But it was a test event for exactly that. Of Every single attendee on every single day had to produce a lateral flow test to get in. And otherwise, it was as if you were attending a, a, a sporting event 
prior to the pandemic. So it was an absolutely fantastic atmosphere. You know, it felt firmly like you were watching something from pre-pandemic times, but obviously the safety safety aspect was also there um, as much as, you know, lateral flow tests can protect um, from people from COVID-19. That, there's been a few of those down south. Um, I think we've had a, there was a test event at Wembley. Um, I think uh, the FA Cup might have been, FA Cup final might have been that test event. The Snooker World Championships at the Crucible in Sheffield was another one, one of the early ones. There hasn't been that up here. There hasn't been many test events where people are going, where the Scottish government are going, yes, we're going to try this. Um, they're almost reticent to do that. You'd think a fan zone like the one that they've got would be an obvious choice. It's 31 days. They can do a make it mandatory for all 3,000 people to show a natural flow test when they arrive. And you've got a fantastic opportunity to test out um, the, these the, the, these test events. And it, that, that, to me, is baffling. I don't understand why they've not gone for it and really grabbed the ball by the horns and gone, let's just give it a go. Um, there's not no harm in testing. Um, although last week when we spoke, uh, we had Elsa on and uh, our health correspondent, and she was talking about how um, the Scottish government claimed that queuing for testing was higher risk than the actual fan zone which is just a ludicrous suggestion. And it, do, it does feel to me as if the Scottish government is, you know, desperately grasping at straws to justify why this is going ahead when other things aren't. Yeah, I think you're right. <clears throat> it, it does feel remarkably um, ill-prepared and, and ill-thought-out. And when you think about how long we've known that the Euros were, were coming and how... Um, how many people would want to be involved in some way, um, you know, if they've not got <clears throat> an ability to actually go and watch the match at Hamden, um, then to be able to to watch it in one of these zones. Like you say, you're absolutely right. There should be, I mean, it's a perfect experiment in a way, you know, to, to see how these things can work and how they can plan from them and what changes might need to be made and so on and so forth, you know, going forward and yet not to have grasped that nettle properly. I don't know. It, it is really odd. And again, you know, I know there's always um, comparisons drawn with what's happening down south and there's sometimes, you know, the government up here has been accused of just trying to do things differently, just to be different for the sake of being different. I'm not entirely sure that's always a justified criticism, but um, at the same time, this does seem like an area in which they could probably have learned lessons from what they're doing um, south of the border to make sure that things are safe and that things can be opened up at whatever speed is is decided upon. But that, that there's the proof that these things can work, and and so let's let's go forward and try something else and push that envelope a bit further. So you're right; it is, it is very odd that they they are not, um, you know, really going for it with this uh, fan zone and, and, and the testing. Absolutely. Um, it's worth mentioning education before we move on. We're going to hear later, um, we've got a fantastic guest lined up. Um, we've got Stephen Gethins, former MP and you know expert in foreign policy, who's going to talk to us about um, Scotland's foreign policy and after the G7 at the weekend. But we're talking about education before we go and hear from him. Um, because last week we, we saw another week where the SQA was top of the list of FMQs. It was led on... Um, for the first time by both um, Anna Sawa and Douglas Ross. Um, I thought they missed an opportunity the week before um, when they didn't both go for it, but they did this week. And we are next week going to get the OECD report um, from the Scottish government on Monday. So that'll be out before we, re before 
you hear from us again. Um, the, it's a big couple of weeks for Scottish education. It sounds like there's a bit of a real appetite for, for change, at least of the SQA in Education Scotland. Um, how critical do you expect the OECD report to be and how you know, important is it going to be informing how Scottish education works in the, ne- in the coming decades? Well, it's it's hugely important, really. I mean, I think there, there's definitely always a caveat with reports like this because, um, in a way, the Scottish government is a customer of the OECD. So how critical they'll be of a, something like that, you know, it, it is up for debate. But I do, there is certainly a sense that there will be things in there written in, no doubt, highly convoluted uh, language as these reports sometimes can be, but the, which will be critical of of the curriculum for excellence and how it's been uh, implemented. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the CFE, as it gets called uh, for short, is something that I think all political parties signed up to initially. You know, it was like there needed to be a revamp of Scotland's curriculum and this is the way they were going to do it. But um, there has been... A lack of resource, I think it's probably fair to say, in terms of implementing it through schools. And of course, the resource is, is mainly teachers um, and uh, teaching hours. So so it'll be interesting to see where the OECD report falls on that. But I think what we can definitely say in advance is that the Scottish government will say, look, things aren't as bad as everybody says. This report shows that we're doing well here, 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 and they'll skip over this the stuff that's maybe bad. And the opposition parties will say, actually, no, this is showing X, Y, Z, and curriculum for excellence needs to be rethought, and we need a full-scale review, and which will probably you know, be nightmarish for anybody that works in the education sector. But um, yeah, I think we can definitely say, and of course, the timing of it coming out in the week just as the parliament is going to go into summer recess is, is not great. And it always uh, always looks bad for a government when they release important stuff, just as parliament's about to break. So there can't be that full scrutiny as uh, the opposition parties would want. Uh, and then, of course, on top of that, you have the assessments, which are completed, I think, to the best of my knowledge in most schools now. And the teachers will be setting the results. I think the 25th of June is when kids are generally expected to get... Um, to get the results from their teachers. And again, that is just as Parliament breaks for this summer. Um, And then there will be the appeals process, which has already come in for for huge criticism. And what's interesting about that is I see the the SSTA, the, the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association, are saying that the SQA are conducting post-submission checks between the 25th of June and the 7th of July. And that um, schools have been told that the SQA will contact them and they must respond by the 5th of July. And now, you know, teachers are on holiday and schools are shut. And you just think, how are they expected to do that and you know I know the teachers can come in for a lot of criticisms especially around the number of holidays they get or the length of holidays but they've had a tough year as well and they need a holiday to recharge and I just think now their holiday looks like it's going to be taken up with having to deal with this mad appeals process that's been put in place so yeah I think uh, my sympathies are definitely lying with the teachers at the minute but mostly with the pupils who who have been put through hell really over this whole thing. Absolutely, it's going to be it's going to be a difficult few weeks. I think the, as you, I think you're right in saying that the lack of parliamentary scrutiny or the apparent lack of parliamentary scrutiny after this OECD report is going to be very hard to justify. It's going to be interesting to see what the 
how the discussion is led through the recess over the summer and um, what we hear from who, um, you know, Shirley Ann Somerville, I expect, is should be all over the broadcast rounds, probably until the the, the results day in, in August and then beyond. But I, I have a feeling that that might not happen. Um, it'll be a fantastic, fa- fascinating report to read, albeit I'm sure not a particularly easy one <laughs> in terms of the vocabulary being used. That's true. Um, Actually, it's interesting um, talking about recess coming up and, you know, harking back to our conversation around cultural events and the lack of them this summer. What we won't have are lots of politicians on fringe shows, you know, um, giving interviews and saying things that they um, otherwise wouldn't say and, or, or shouldn't say even. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so it'll be a much quieter summer, I think, in terms of that. But I think for Shirley Ann Somerville, it could be a, a very um, intense summer altogether because, I mean, she's already said that she will reform the SQE and Education Scotland. So that work will need to begin immediately um, before everything gets put in place for next year's um, set of exams. So, yeah, she's got a lot on her plate. So you're right, she should be everywhere this summer, but we'll see if um, see if she, she is or if she just kind of buries her head under the, the mound of paperwork that's on her desk. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, it's been a big weekend in the world of uh, international geopolitics and um, with the G7 summit down in Carbis Bay in Cornwall. Um, we have uh, fantastically got Stephen Gethins, uh, former MP, former SNP MP, and he's, a, he's an expert foreign policy. He's actually just written a book, published a book um, about Scotland's foreign policy. So we'll talk to him a bit about that and the... Uh, the consequences of the G7 summit and right now. Hello and welcome to the steamy uh, Professor of Practice and International Relations at the University of St Andrews and former SNP MP for North East Vice, Stephen Gethins. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Stephen. Uh, with us as always is, is Gina as well. Um, how have things been? It must be a busy time for you guys at, at the university at the minute. It is. It is. It's. It's. It's good, but it's. It's been busy, and I have to say, it's. It's been a tough old year for staff and students because universities, all about that. Um, that experience as much as it's about the learning, and so, you know, it's. It's. It's been a hard year for the students, but they've worked really, really hard, and so I think everybody's looking forward to summer and hopefully the weather, the weather remaining nice. <laughs> Absolutely, we can. We we can but dream. I think on Sunday. Uh, we had the best weather we've had all year, and that's probably it. Knowing that might be <laughs> that was summer, summer yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's it's obviously been a very big week or a big weekend in the world of international relations. You've you've also yeah. recently written a book on Scottish foreign policy, but um, called uh-huh. Nation to Nation. So I'll give that a quick plug. Make sure people go out. To, uh, I know that this is. I know we're only doing sound at the moment, but I am holding a copy of it in my hand. <laughs> I like the fact that you have that available. Just, just a is hand. That for, um, is that for TV appearances, Stephen? Just you know, for, for my many, many TV appearances. <laughs> uh, but what? We'll start. We'll start with a simple question. What? What was your takeaway from the G seven over the weekend? Um, what's your view on it? Yeah, I have to say. So I've I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, so in some ways, I think Boris Johnson got lucky just because these things rotate, and so. Um, at a time when things are otherwise difficult, and we'll talk about that in a moment, you were able to do the soft stuff. And people always underestimate soft power in foreign policy. You know, Cornwall was looking fabulous. 
Um, the English sunshine was looking great. They were on the beach, great food and drink, and you're able to show off a wee bit. And that's part of it, isn't it? That's part of showing off a bit. On the other side, and maybe people wouldn't be that surprised to hear me say this, but I, I think it's a substantive point. The UK has never been more isolated than I think it is now. And a lot of that came out over the weekend. You know, Joe Biden, before he came over, um, very unhappy about the way the UK is behaving towards the Northern Ireland Protocol um, and, and about Brexit. Um, obviously, the UK very isolated in Europe, but even in the broader Commonwealth, that's something that, you know, nobody thinks this is a good idea. The only the only world leader who thought global Britain was a terribly good idea was Donald Trump. And and and, and this was seen as the first post-Trump major international summit. So it, it was hard not to feel that the UK has never been this isolated. I mean, I know there are references to Suez, but in the Suez crisis, you know, the UK was isolated, but it was isolated along with France um, and, and, and Israel. It's now sort of isolated on its own. So I know people would expect me to say it, but I think this is the place that British foreign policy finds itself at the moment. So it's a really interesting point, Stephen, about how isolated Britain is. How how important do you think the the differing levels of leadership from Joe Biden compared to Donald Trump is in that in that sense when it comes to how Britain is viewed on the world stage? I think it was quite a profound difference. I mean, I can remember going back to 2016, which just seems like forever ago politically diplomatically and everything else you know this this was when barack obama still sat in the white house when the uk was still a member of the european union and after the brexit vote and and people started talking about the forthcoming elections and saying well hillary clinton is going to win as a matter of fact i remember saying well you know look what just happened everybody was saying it was a matter of fact that the uk would remain within the european um, union and so I think in Joe Biden's eyes and in other people's eyes, the Brexit vote and the Trump presidency were seen as very much the same pattern of events. Now you can say rightly or wrongly, and 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 that's a different debate. But perception is everything, and it was perceived that these things were joined, that 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 these were two issues that were joined, and that's something that Donald Trump got. He talked about Brexit being a fantastic thing. Um, he talked about Boris Johnson. He was obviously an admirer of Boris Johnson. And if you like, Joe Biden in many ways stands for everything in international diplomacy and politics that Donald Trump stood against. That was part of his success electorally. He was for the Northern Irish Protocol. He's for the rules-based system. And he pointedly, because of course we've got the NATO summit coming up, he pointedly, when he spoke to Emmanuel Macron, he pointedly talked about the EU and the benefits of having a European Union to NATO and to security. So he even tied in the security elements. So US foreign policy is something that sees the EU as a good thing. It sees NATO as a good thing. It sees the rules-based system as a good thing and doesn't see Brexit as a good thing. And when everything, you know, Boris Johnson is quite a radical prime minister domestically, but also in the way that the UK is perceived in the world. But he's a radical prime minister in a way that history will tell us who's right, incidentally, but in a way that nobody else thinks that his vision for the UK is 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 a good one. Stephen, can I ask? Uh, you mentioned the link between Brexit, the Brexit vote, and and Trump being yeah. elected. You know, a lot of that, or there certainly was a lot written around the time about the reasons for that, for that what was called a populist kind of vote, um, and the appeal yeah. for it was because people were feeling disconnected 
because globalism had gone too far and yeah. you know it was that idea that people wanted to retain control and to bring back power and to mm-hmm. you know and to have more of a handle on things as they saw it um from from their own of their domestic agenda in their own country rather than um you know the, some sort of big global uh, discussions and so on and i mean i just wonder from your point of view and from what you you teach nowadays do you think that has any legit legitimacy to it do you think people have become um disappointed with the global project so to speak i think i think there's something to it that people can feel a little bit left behind i mean i i, I can remember um campaigning in, in in my old constituency and it took in two towns of about the same size so you had st andrews you know wealthy university town very international and then you had Leaven, and there are parts of Leaven, which is about the same size as St Andrews, very similar, both really pretty, nice places. Um, but there are parts of Leaven where there was real poverty. And I can remember campaigning in St Andrews, and of course, everybody's queuing up, and of course, of course, we're going to vote against Brexit. What a dreadful idea. And there were bits, of, I remember speaking to some, some people who were, well, what's the EU ever done for us? And, and when you're in areas which has suffered in some circumstances, or some bits of Scotland, just like the United States, just like other bits of Europe and, and the UK, which have suffered generational levels of unemployment. And you're trying to talk to them about a European project and, and, and maybe part of the failure, and, and I'm part of this, maybe part of the failure of pro-European politicians over the years was that maybe we weren't making the benefits as relevant to everybody. Now, I think there were. I think there was a really strong case. But, the, the, well, look, there is something to it. Because one of the things, if you're in politics... You can you can disagree with an electorate. You know, I don't like the fact that everybody voted for Boris Johnson as prime minister, but that's how they voted, whether you like it or not. Um, they voted for Donald Trump, whether people liked it or not. And so what's what's our job? And, and, and indeed, I even go so far as to say what's, what's jobs in academia and journalism as well. But one of the most important things that we can all do is to try and understand that, because without understanding it, it becomes very difficult to build for the future. What's your... I mean, it's interesting you, you, you talk about that because I think one of the difficulties that unionism, British unionism has yeah. at the minute is almost the same, it's the same disease of failure in terms of not not being able to make the positive case for the union in which Scotland sits and, you know, for the, for the European Union referendum, it was yeah. the union for which the UK sits. Is, is there a, I don't know how you diagnose that and, and, and diagnose the causes for that. I, th- I think the cases with British unionism, and I've written a little bit about this, are, are, are quite distinct. Now, look, I'm not, so first help, I'm not a unionist, but I've, I've got very good, as, as we all do, very good unionist friends, and there's so many thoughtful unionist writers out there. And I think the union's got a problem, first of all, because those who are in charge of the union, Boris Johnson is the minister for the union, does he really understand the union? And if you listen to former senior officials, people like Kieran Martin, Philip Rycroft and others, no, he probably doesn't. And if you don't understand the union, then it becomes very difficult to to make a case. There's also another challenge that we've got in Scotland if if you're a unionist. Now, people who are pro-independence have got big challenges as well, and I'm sure we'll come on to those. But let's focusing on that question for a moment. If you're a unionist, you, you also, I think, have to be in your 60s before you're within an age demographic who believes and votes in, in the union in a majority. That means that the union, as it is, is losing whole generations who are switched off by Brexit, by Tory governments, 
who no longer identify with the UK. And it's where I think, you know, Gordon Brown's got a point, Alec Massey, other unionists have got a point where they say muscular unionism will only drive these people further away. So my challenge is to them, how does Scotland, for example, have its own international brand? How do these young people feel uncomfortable in a UK with which they do not identify at the moment? And I'm afraid to say I'm not sure you can have this prime minister, this conservative electoral coalition made up of vote leave people that think you know, dropping international development is a good idea. Can you have that successful electoral coalition in England and this union? And I'm not sure you can. Is, is it fair to say that about uh, dropping international aid, though, Stephen? Because, I mean, there was a you know, there was a fair sizable number of people who were going to rebel against um, the idea to cu- of cutting international aid. And I wonder if, uh, I actually do wonder if that kind of action, if it had been successful and it might still come back, you know, um, would actually be mm-hmm. beneficial to the union in the sense that, you know, like those young, like you're talking about younger people who are disaffected as, as being part of um, the UK as such, you know, could look at that and say, well, actually, maybe it's not all bad. You know, Britain is still able to do some good in the world. And um, through the vaccine project as well, you know, by ensuring that um, vaccines go to India and, and to other countries that are desperately in need of them. Um, step, You know, if the UK was to, government was to step up its game in that area, do you think that would be, and of course, you know, I'm sure you don't want the UK government to be successful, <laughs> really, but you know, do you think that would be enough to change some younger people's views? No, but I, I will say this. I, I will say I think the most important thing that anybody can ever do in politics, academia, anywhere, is to try and understand people with whom they disagree. And so I, I think it's incumbent on those who believe in independence to really try and understand what drives unionism, because if one day you fundamentally want to be successful in your pursuit, then you need to take the whole country with you. So I, I, I agree, it's not my you know, it's not my place. And fundamentally, I'd like to see independence. But I do think it's important for any members of the SNP, and I believe for, for my colleagues who are still MPs and MSPs, to try and understand what drives unionism. Because I think, and, and, and similar, it goes both ways, actually. You know, so for, for unionists to be successful, they need to understand what is driving this, 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 this trend for independence. On the point you make, but I think this goes to a fundamental thing that has changed within the UK. So those who were people threatening to rebel, Andrew Mitchell, Tom Tugendhat, Jeremy Hunt, etc., are very much now on the fringes of the Conservative Party. You know, I mean, one thing I noticed during the Brexit years in the Labour Party and in the Conservative Party were incredibly thoughtful and talented politicians who were finding themselves on the back benches because they're parties were changing. We saw that in the Hartlepool by-election on the same days as Scottish parliamentary elections. So had that rebellion been successful, it, it would have been good because it was the right thing to do. But is that changing the overall trajectory of where we are? And even on the vaccine side of it, now this is a global issue, but you had Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, um, who was a close ally of Nelson Mandela, obviously, and, and others in the world saying, this vaccines, 100 million vaccines sounds like a lot. It's not. It, it just doesn't go very far. And you're entering into a new world whereby many inequalities will become worse than they were previously. And vaccine inequality is about to become yet another difference between, if you like, the wealthiest parts of the world and the poorest parts of of the world. So I'm not sure there's enough there. And it doesn't change the fundamentals of the direction of travel of the British state at the moment. There is no such thing is the status quo. It's one reason why I don't think we should talk use the term Indy Ref 2 if there's another independence referendum. This is not 
an independence referendum on the same terms as last time. Neither side is defending a status quo this time. Well, I'm intrigued, Stevie. You talk about um, the vaccine stuff, um, and the, the, I think it's a billion vaccines, wasn't it, that's been pledged yeah. by the G7 over the weekend. Is, is there a failure of moral leadership from Boris Johnson in, in this? You know, he, he's leading a country that's led the way in the vaccine development in the vaccine deployment you know there's only israel is ahead is head of the uk in terms in those terms has he failed diplomatically to force more from the likes of the us and and france and germany it's not just up to the uk i mean look i think first thing to to, to nail that it's not just israel that's ahead of the the uk obviously you know there are other countries that are ahead of the uk and this although the uk's done really well i think I think, um, and this is where nuance occasionally is missed in politics. You can, you can think that the UK government had initial, you know, didn't do very well with the initial pandemic, but then think it did a, it, it it's it's done well with the vaccine rollout. And sometimes we lose this in politics. You know, um, not everybody gets everything wrong and everything right. But remember, the vaccine deployment and the vaccine development was an international effort. It was a pan-global effort. It was a European effort, um, to get this together so that bringing down borders internationally and things like reach and on on on, on areas like research um was actually the most important thing in terms of the vaccine um developing a vaccine and let's not forget you know this is something that none of us had really heard of say at the start of 20 well going into kind of christmas 2019 when it first emerged in wuhan and we've got a vaccine already isn't that astonishing but that came about because of international collaboration so what, what I'll say with Boris Johnson is it's not merely his moral failure. It is everybody's moral failure amongst, if, if you like, those countries who um, who turned up in Cornwall for, for talks. So we all have a responsibility in this. And I think that it's going to be one of the most significant challenges in international affairs over the coming, over the coming year. But I have to say... I'm not sure I've got a huge amount of confidence because if if you think it's a priority to cut international development in half, which incidentally didn't just mean some projects wouldn't happen, but some projects just stopped, you know, um, and, and we know that that would lead to losses of life elsewhere in the world, then it, it's it's not a great foretaste of some of the big challenging decisions that would need to be made to have a proper global vaccine rollout. So we were talking about vaccines. <laughs> Sadly, in in between the the end of your question, the end of your answer, Stephen, and and now we've lost Gina to technical gremlins um, for the day. So um, goodbye, Gina. We'll see you next yeah. week. <laughs> I, hope, I hope she wasn't so appalled by the answers that she's gone off, <laughs> pulled out the computer, the wires from her computer. She she did pass on her apology, Stephen. So I don't oh, think God, it's you. For, <laughs> These are the things that we're all getting to live with at the moment, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to ask, actually, there was a really interesting thread. I don't know if you read it on Twitter this morning from Lewis Goodall um, of, of the BBC um, about Joe Biden's. Uh, we spoke about it a little bit earlier about Joe Biden's influence. Um, but the, there was one interesting aspect of it where he described Joe Biden as having almost being the last of the, uh, the last of that sort of transatlantic political man who really values Atlanticism in, in a way that Donald Trump didn't and Barack Obama arguably didn't as well. Yeah. Um, do, do, do you think that his his influence over the next three, four years um, with Boris Johnson is going to is going to be a, a, a positive one for the country, for the UK and for, for, for geopolitics? Or do you think it's going to be slightly more difficult than maybe people think for him to make a, a positive 
um, you know. So I think Joe Biden will be tricky for the United Kingdom, but tricky for the United Kingdom in a way that's probably good for its citizens and good and world citizens. Is that Boris Johnson's not daft, you know, but he does have his, as as I mentioned, his electoral coalition made up of people who do not like international development, do not like the European Union, and a party for whom these fights with the EU, I think he thinks, play quite well. And Joe Biden provides a reality check on that. It isn't just the big bad EU. But remember, when we pick fights with the EU, the UK is now isolated against 27 other sovereign and independent states. Boris Johnson and others are Atlanticists, that's fine. Um, but they have a prime minister, uh, sorry, president who believes in the international rules-based system, who believes in these transatlantic alliances, and who believes in peace in Northern Ireland and feels that the. But but remember, this isn't just Joe Biden. But you think you know, the Canadians think this. It was it was something that struck me when I was in Parliament, and we, I remember with some Brexiteer Tories, and I was on committee with them, and they'd meet up with the US or they'd meet up with Commonwealth leaders, and they thought everybody'd think what a splendid idea Brexit was. Nobody thought it was a good idea. So I think with President Biden, it, it, it could be that way that you have a president who believes in the international rules-based system. That means belief in the EU, it means belief in NATO, it means belief in multilateralism, um, which incidentally I think goes to the heart of the divergence between Holyrood and Westminster at the moment in terms of our politics. So probably not good for Boris Johnson, but quite good for the rest of us, especially what's given going on before. In terms of if that's going to be the case going forward, none of us knows. I mean, the world is changing. The vaccine the pandemic will change the world quite dramatically. I hope it brings us closer together. It makes it equality and um, cooperation and respect for the international rules-based system is something. But I also think there's something in Gordon Brown's words around you have Russia and China and others with one view of the world. You have Europe and the United States nowadays and, and Canada, Australia and elsewhere with another view of of the world. And I think that will shape things an awful lot, not, lot more than global Britain ever possibly could. It's interesting. I, I, I wanted to touch on um, Scotland's place. I mean, you've, you've, yeah. written, you've written this book about Scottish foreign policy and, and there was an interesting argument, if you can call it an argument, um, brought forward by Stephen Kerr of the Scottish Conservatives about, um, I think it's you know, missions to, to, to foreign states. Um, yeah. How important is it to Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister of Scotland, in a Scotland that is presents itself as very different to, to England at the very least, yeah. um, to have a foreign policy where it is viewed as more European? What 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 what's the yeah. play being being made there by 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 the First Minister? So I think the first thing to correct Stephen Kerr, and I'll say it with respect. So I was in Parliament with Stephen Kerr, and I you know um, I say it with great respect. I think he missed the point entirely that having a foreign policy, I mean, Scotland's foreign policy, because we, we're, we're not an, a state actor, is something that's very much hidden in plain sight. We do have a foreign policy. We have done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's a point I make in the book going through the history of it. What's more, our foreign policy has been developed by successive unionist administrations. So if you go back, Scotland's distinctive representation to the EU that Stephen Kerr wanted to close down was set up by the Conservatives. You know, people like Philip Rycroft, who I interviewed for the book, helped with that. Lord Strathclyde was involved in it. They used it in terms of the branding, having a distinctive Scottish voice to the European institutions. But went beyond that. It went in terms of trade to Japan and South Korea. 
I spoke to one Brexiteer, former Conservative MEP, who told me that he wished we used the Scottish brand in the diaspora a lot more when trying to get a trade deal with the US. People in other administrations elsewhere wondering why Scotland's got this really strong brand. Why doesn't the UK play the whole team and use that brand? In the same way that, for example, Bavaria would feed into German foreign policy and strength, Quebec the same in Canada, and Denmark has a very grown-up relationship with, say, the Faroe Islands and, and Greenland. So Scotland's foreign policy in these offices were first developed under the Conservatives, were further developed under Jack McConnell and Henry McLeish as Labour First Ministers. Um, so this is not something new. This is something that was actually went to the heart. Jack McConnell and Henry McLeish remain very proud of the foreign policy impact that they had, and so they should. You know, Jack McConnell was the first First Minister to set up a, an international development fund. That being said, Brexit has changed the fundamentals of politics within the UK dramatically. Now, Scotland's soft power in terms of what happened in the aftermath of Brexit, have become really important um, elsewhere in the world. I think people get independence. I'm not saying if they're for or against it, it's a matter for the people of Scotland, but people get independence in a way that maybe wasn't the case in 2014. They get it in places like Washington DC and Ottawa, and crucially in Brussels and in the other European capitals, including um, Paris and Berlin, in a way that wasn't the case before. And the other thing is why Nicola, I, I'd argue, that actually we need to invest in it as we see the benefits in terms of inward investment and we see the, the, the benefits in terms of clout. And it's something that other countries are much more developed sub-state actors with foreign policy clout. And fundamentally, if the UK is seen as more isolationist, Scotland is in a unique position to maybe rebuild those bridges. So actually, I'd argue that pursuit of that foreign policy, not only does it go to the heart of the divisions between Holyrood and Westminster, but it might actually be quite good for the whole of the UK because you have a part of the UK with effective soft, sorry, with soft power clout. And I'll just leave you with this thought. Ireland, and I know it's got the whole range of, um, of, of powers you do as an independent country, was described by The Economist as a diplomatic superpower and has managed to get Washington and the EU27 right behind its foreign policy ambitions with its biggest threat to the state being Brexit. Um, since since the war, perhaps. So I think there's a lot more we can and should be doing, and it's something that's worth investing in. How, how strong do you view Scotland's soft power at the minute in, in, in terms of, you know, in the White House, say? You know, could Nicola Sturgeon bank on Joe Biden uh, support in, a, in, a, in another, another independence referendum, or is it more of a understanding of the issues that are going on? So your soft power is never, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody... Joe Biden doesn't wake up in the morning and think about Scottish independence. No, no in world leader. In an admission that would shock everyone, I'm sure. In an admission that I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure condemned. That would be front page of the Scotsman when this comes out. Concedes. A former MP concedes. Um, but, and, 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 you know, as, as, as a guy called Jonathan Cohn runs big international NGO um, conciliation resources I've worked with for decades said to me, Foreign policy, what is it? It's about people thinking well of you because nobody in the world thinks about foreign policy, although foreign policy is a huge driver of domestic policy. I mean, after all, Scotland went into a Treaty of Union in 1707 because of a failed foreign policy venture in Panama in many ways. You know, it's a huge driver of our day-to-day -day lives, but maybe it doesn't get the same amount of attention. But what you do is it's something that you work on over years and years. You try and make people think well of you. So come an independence referendum what are you saying to the rest of the world? You're saying, well, first of all, 
this wouldn't be a bad thing for, for your national interests. Secondly, Scotland would be a responsible global citizen. And that's the biggest thing that people are looking for. And people understand it. And interestingly, of course, you know, if you look at Washington, you've got the, um, the senior um, director of the National Security Council for Europe is Amanda Sloat, who did her PhD in Edinburgh on devolution, get Scotland. I don't know what her personal views are, but she understands it. And then as the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the European Parliament, you've got David McAllister, a German member of Parliament whose dad was Scottish, but he understands it. And I think you cannot ask for much more than for people to understand your perspective. And then you see the Irish investing heavily in soft power over decades in terms of people thinking well of them, understanding the Irish position, having that soft power clout culturally amongst the population, which means that when they need to spend that political capital and that diplomatic capital, say, during the Brexit process, they have built up that huge capital of goodwill. And at the moment, you see the UK doing the reverse, ripping through that, cap that, 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 that goodwill capital. Soft power counts, diplomacy counts, and that's why you invest in it. Where, where would you put, you know, say we, we hit 2023 and... Yeah. Scotland votes yes in 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 IndyRef two. Mm. Um, where is Scotland sitting on the world stage? So, and this is, I think, this is a challenge for independent supporters. So, where I think Scotland sits in the world stage would be no country would be better prepared for independence here in terms of the debates we've had in terms of the institutions. But there'd be a lot of hard work to be done. Um, let me disagree with some SNP messaging over the years, uh, which is all this reference to Scotland as a small country. If you look at global terms. Um, Scotland sits about bang in the middle population terms. In, in an EU level, the median size of an EU member state is Sweden, at about eight and a half million, so not that much bigger than Scotland. So Scotland is a medium, if not nor, if, if you like, some might say normal sized independent country. So that would place us in the middle. But if you look at similar sized countries, Finland, Denmark, Ireland, Sweden, um, multilateralism and that pooling and sharing of resources is something that goes to the heart of their foreign policy. Some people have argued that Ireland wasn't truly independent or wasn't able to be independent until it joined the EU. If you look at the Finns, if you look at the Baltics, are really interesting the way they've changed things. That pooling and sharing of sovereignty in the EU, they say, strengthens their independence. So I think we'd have to get ourselves really comfortable with quite quickly is it membership of international organisations, the pooling and sharing of sovereignty and working collectively is something that becomes really, really important and would be in the UK, sorry, in the Scottish national interest, also in the UK national interest, but it's not a route that they're pursuing. And that's something that we'd have to get used to very, very, very quickly. Do you think that would cause issues, you know, say we're in, I think, I think it's probably fair to say that another independence referendum would be a pretty divisive um you know, de vote or, or debate. Um, do you think that an independent Scotland would struggle with the dip diplomatic relationship it would have with the rest of the UK, as would be post that, in that pooling and sharing of res resources? So in terms of the divisiveness, I, let, let me just tackle that straight away, because that's something that's a responsibility of those who conduct the debate. Now, first mm -hmm. of all, and it's not as if you can avoid it, because we know the country's pretty split. Whole generations are now switching off the, U, the the country for which they hold a passport. So not holding a referendum is actually a pretty divisive thing to do as well. So, you know, I, I think that's first of all. And that's where the responsibility comes on politicians, activists, anybody conducting the debate. 
um, my message to independent supporters, but go to unionist supporters as well, is that probably more than 2014, people are taking independence seriously and therefore the rest of the world is watching the debate. So how we conduct ourselves in this debate and how we conduct ourselves in, in, in the journey towards independence will have a bearing on how the world sees Scotland. Now, if we have gone through a debate with a legitimate, recognised um, um, method for getting independence, you know, something similar to 2014, I think the world would accept it. I mean, that, that, that was the indication. I, I think it would be the, the, what remains of the UK's best interests to get off on the right foot with, with its near neighbour, you know, just as it, it has to work on its relationship with Ireland. I think that would be in the UK's best interest. I think Scotland has to do a number of things, first of all. It has to show that it would take its responsibility seriously in NATO in terms of security, in the EU in terms of um, the rules-based system, um, and in terms of trade with our partners, and in the UN in terms of other broader international responsibilities. I think what we'd also have to do is I think you need to enter into independence in a spirit of generosity. What does that mean? That means saying to London, we're here to help, you know, let's let's do this in a responsible way. Let's cooperate on some stuff. You know, I mean, do you need a new Commonwealth Wargraves Commission or do you need other 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 areas where you can build that commonality? I think Alex Hammond just talked about that social union. And then what I think you need to do is you need to act as a bridge between your most important bilateral relationship, which is and will remain London, and your most important multilateral relationship, which is in Brussels, because that London-Brussels relationship has been damaged. And the UK cannot ignore Europe. It just can't ignore it. The rest of the world is saying this is going to remain your most important trade and political partnership. But just as Ireland has helped to facilitate and smooth over that relationship, couldn't Scotland, given that post-independence we will retain the best transport links, a common language, our legal systems have a lot of areas where they're, they're, they're overlapping and we have a cultural understanding. So if Scotland plays it well, could Scotland be a voice for what remains in the UK within the European institutions, just as Ireland has been? Um, and I think we need to act as a bridge. I don't think that'll always be easy, but I think if you enter in with a spirit of generosity and a recognition of the continued importance of that relationship with London, it's a pretty good place to start. And it'll put you in good stead for when you're looking to offer something to your new international partners as well. That's going to be a difficult discussion to have, isn't it? With 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 you know, this is all hypothetical. Obviously, it's a sure. ac- academic exercise. But you know, in a post Brexit UK, and this is a post Brexit UK, and a few years down the line, um, the first thing that Scotland is presumably going to have to do is going to have a discussion with the UK and the EU about mm-hmm. its economic relationship. That's going to be a very difficult discussion to have. How, how do you yeah. see that that potentially playing out? There's no avoiding the difficult discussions, incidentally. And actually, I'd, I'd say, and I'll talk about that economic subject, but something will happen before that, which is, and why we need to have the debate now. Malcolm Chambers, who's Deputy Director at Roussy, who's a Scot, um, and he's, he's a unionist, really thoughtful guy, said to me, I'm I'm going to vote no in the referendum. And that's, you know, as is right, and he does so thoughtfully, um, and he's well worth listening to. But he said, if Scotland goes for independence, I want that to be a success. And on day one of independence or day, the day one after the independence referendum, when you're not independent, the world will want to know what are your values? Who are you? What do you represent as a country? And we need to determine that because that will determine whoever happens to be first minister of a six, you know, and it, Scotland the day after a successful independence referendum. You need to tell the world who you are and what your values are. And that's something that we need to be discussing right now. 
Um, in terms of the economic relationships, yes, this is hard. And actually, I think an awful lot of the work needs to go into this now. What happens with the border? You know, I mean, a lot of this can't be solved, incidentally, because there's stuff that FD says, well, you must solve it before a referendum. You can't, you know. There's a lot of stuff that would have to wait till the day after a referendum till, till you start discussing. What's your relationship like with Europe? Now, you want to protect the common travel area. I suspect that's something to be a given because that's something that's important in Dublin, it's important in Belfast, important in Cardiff, London, and important in Edinburgh. So that gives you a starter point. So you're not joining Schengen. But you want to rejoin the single market and you want to sit as a seat um, at, 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 at the top table. That's why you've gone for independence. There are other models about how this can work, incidentally. If you look next door to our near neighbours in the Nordic states, you have some Nordic states, which are Finland in the euro and in the EU, Denmark and Sweden outside the euro, inside the EU, Norway outside the EU, but sitting inside Schengen, actually. And then you even have you know, you have the smaller states, not dissimilar to the Channel Islands or Isle of Man. You've got the Holland Islands, the Faroese, Greenland, with their own actually particular relationships with their state and with the EU. And what's interesting is they all have a sort of Scandinavian or Nordic identity, a national identity and a local identity, and they rub along pretty well. And actually, I think we need to, there's something that we can learn from our near neighbours in the Nordics about how things can work and work better in, if you like, these islands across the British Isles um, as well in this archipelago. And I think that that's something, if you enter into the independence negotiations in that spirit of goodwill, and recognising you can't do everything. And independence in the 21st century is very different from independence in the 18th century. Um, I think that has to go to the heart. And that's culturally where political leadership becomes quite important. And, and on political leadership, I mean, we've got a first minister at the minute who's probably one of the most popular politicians Scotland's ever seen in Nicola Sturgeon. Um, yeah. And you have her predecessor in Alex Salmond essentially acting as a bit of a disruptor in in the in the S, in, in the Scottish independence debate, and his interventions in foreign policy have been have kind of highlighted a, a, an additional aspect of the pro independence movement of you know not rejoining the EU, joining the EEA. And yeah. is that is that the sort of thing you're discussed you're, you're talking about there in terms of what options might be on the table? Well, no, I mean Nicola's a leader of the SNP at the moment. Nicola's a passionate pro-European, and, and and consequently, and it's 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 not for me to say what the the policy of the Alapa Party or anybody else for that matter should be, but the people of Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain in the European Union. That has been the driver of independence. You know, I mean, John Curtis reckons one in five no voters have now moved to yes as a direct consequence of that. So you cannot deny that the people of Scotland want to be members of the European Union. And incidentally, you know, if, 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 if you're a member of the EEA or EFTA or anything else, you're not solving many of the border issues at, at, at that point. But what you're doing is sitting outside the main decision-making body. In fact, it was the um, Norwegian Prime Minister just a few days ago said that the new deal with the UK is worse than the deal that they had previously with the UK when it was part of the European Union. Um, so I think that's what's driving independence. The SNP remains overwhelmingly popular. The ALBA party went in with that policy, and it's, it's their policy, it's not for me to say, but it was endorsed by 1.7% of the population, I think, on the regional list vote. So I think there's a very clear, an international policy, certainly, there's a very clear direction of travel about where things want to go. And Nicola Sturgeon will want to give our international partners as much clarity as you can. And what's interesting about that clarity, and I'd argue, is that independence very much becomes, is very much re-entering the European norm 
in a way that some might argue it wasn't the case in 2014. But right now, Brexit Britain is a unique experiment, and it's still an experiment, is leaving the UK very isolated and is changing the UK dramatically and rapidly. So if you like the boring, the normal option or, or the sort of the option that re-enters the European mainstream is the one of independence nowadays. So that changes the dynamic. And I think that changes the terms of the debate that that, that you're going to have. Um, and it's something that I explored in the in the book. And just continue quick quickly on Alex because I think he he's, yeah. he he was you know in the run up to twenty fourteen you know the 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 main spokesperson for Scottish independence he now obviously has a has a show on 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 RT you know formerly Russia yeah. Today does that hurt Scotland's soft power at all do you think that they do have we do have someone who is who who seems to um, deny the orthodoxy in that way. No, I don't think it does. I mean, my experience is that, that it hasn't. I mean, look, I'm I'm somebody my, and it actually strikes me if if you look at Alex's speeches when he was first minister and on the run up to that referendum, and I quote them in the book. There's some really impressive, thoughtful speeches around multilateralism, around the rules based system. You gave a great speech at the Brookings Institute that I, I find I was quoting at length. It was this was very good. He was interviewed instantly by Fiona Hill, who was a Russia expert um, at Brookings and was in the White House as well. Um, where I think Alex probably let down his own legacy is in terms of Russia today. This is not, you know, it is somewhere where I think the the um, chief executive of Russia today talked about the hijacking that was a hijacking and, and the seizing of a passenger from the Ryanair flight is a good thing to do, you know, was um, jealous of Belarus um, who backed the annexation of, of, of parts, you know, the, the, the chopping off of bits of another country. And, and we see that in terms of Georgia, where the UN is repeatedly called for as an area where I used to work. But crucially, and this is this is where I'd, I'd appeal in terms of Russia not being a good influence and people overlooking some things. I spent a lot of time working in the former Soviet Union. I remember going there a few years ago. I would encourage anybody Russia's a great country. It's contributed so much culturally. You know, and Scotland's had very special links and Brian Cox and Billy Kay have done some fantastic programs about the links between Scotland and, and Russia. And, and actually, the last time I was in Moscow, I remember walking out of a subway and in, in, it was in February 2020. I was over there doing some, um, so I was over there and you see Robert Burns piled on these booksellers carts over there. Um, so this, this great country, great links. Never underestimate the way the people of Russia have suffered under Vladimir Putin. Um, as well as the neighbours. You know, this is a country that, an administration that does not respect the independence of its neighbours, places like the Baltics and elsewhere. But I would encourage anybody to sit down with the LGBTQ activists who had been beaten up by police, with lawyers who lost their jobs because they were promoting the rule of law, with the, the families of journalists who have been murdered in the streets or political opposition who've been murdered in the streets. And the one that hit me most of all was a group called the Mothers of Russia, who try to get information about their kids, often their teenage kids, who've been lost in one of Putin's many wars, be it within his own borders in places like Chechnya, Syria or elsewhere, who get harassed by the police, mums who've lost their kids who get harassed in the streets. This is not an administration we should be aligning ourselves with, and it is not a pleasant administration either. Um, and I would not want to be seen to be given sucker to that. And incidentally, there's so much more we could be doing at a UK level, given the financial markets. That was something you know we can go into that in a, in a different. But there's a lot more we can be doing domestically. But this is not a particularly pleasant administration in in, in the Kremlin just now. 
Do you think that I'm, you know, an independent Scotland post, post, you know, Indy Ref 2 and post all the negotiations, you know, arguably would, would, would lose quite a bit of influence that it could have, you know, say when Gordon Brown was, was prime minister, you had a Scot um, at the top table of the G8 as as it was then, independent Scotland would lose that influence. Do you think that's a, that's something that could be rebuilt or replaced with something else? How, how would you see that working? Yeah, of course. Look, you have to remember, as, as, as within this, and I mean, do, no disrespect to Gordon Brown, but you're not representing Scottish interests at that point. You're representing British interests. And if you look at the way that Ireland, similar size, has built up an international reputation and diplomatic clout, you know, for the first time in its history, Dublin has more international clout than London does. The first time in its history. And that is as a direct consequence of an embassy network, of its soft power, international brand, of a lot of hard work. But it's really an impact of independence. And you see the difference. You see the Irish quality of life, its standard of living, its exports. You know, so foreign policy isn't just something that happens between prime ministers or presidents. It's something that has a deep impact on our day-to-day lives. And with the greatest respect to Gordon Brown, it didn't benefit Scotland in the way that, say, an independent foreign policy would. If you asked any country in the European Union or any country that gave up its independence, sorry, sorry, that that won its independence from the UK, doesn't want to give it up, nobody, nobody would ever look to give that up. And I think that being an international player goes to the very heart of why you'd want to be independent. And I think that with hard work, with being a good global citizen, you can gain that clout. The UK does not have that clout anymore. It's incredibly isolated. It's difficult to see that changing in in the near future. It's exceptionally damaged. And we saw that over the weekend with the G7 as well. And that's somewhere where this, where Scotland needs to learn its lessons. There's also an awful lot of work that we can be doing at at, at, at the moment to be building that foreign policy cloud. And I will finish on this note, but do you, do you think that there's a lot of talk about how Scotland presents itself internationally and maybe even domestically in terms of, of, of opinions and progressiveness that maybe doesn't reflect the reality? Um, and do, do you think that there is the the drive in Scotland for, for that globalist outlook in a way that certainly seems to have you know, at least diminished, if not disappeared, down south. Yeah, I do, and I'll tell you why. I mean, if if you look at what's driving people who want independence, and and I talk about the one in five who have gone from Remain votes to, um, sorry, who who were no voters, who who that has been a direct consequence of Brexit. That's a direct consequence of people who believe in a multilateralist world that we should be working closely with our partners as a partnership of equals. In, in many ways, the European Union has changed it. You know, It's not as if you're becoming independent and then going out to the big wide world. It is a different union, it is a, it is, but it's a union. You know, somebody once said to me, "This is a the European Union is a union for independent states who work together. The UK isn't. You, you know, it, it just isn't anymore. And we see that with the different ways. So I, I think that that idea of multilateralism, membership of the European Union is driving the independence movement. And therefore, a newly independent Scotland would necessarily reflect those values. And I think it would want to. And, and, and you see that whenever Nicola Sturgeon makes a speech and when Angus Robertson has, 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 has made his comments, the leadership um, believe the same thing as those who are driving it at a public level. So I, I think there's a lot we can learn from Ireland, Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands and elsewhere. But fundamentally, Scotland isn't Ireland, Denmark, 
the Norway, just as it isn't just a mini UK, it's Scotland. So you have to determine your own foreign policy. And that's a debate and discussion that we need to have right now. And do you think that enough has been done in terms of, you know, internally with, with within the SNP and within the independence movement to develop mm-hmm. that foreign policy ahead of a vote? Um, I think a lot, can, a lot more can be done. I, I think there's work to, to develop an awful lot more, and it was good to see stuff in the SNP manifesto about Scottish Council on Global Affairs, and that's some work that's being undertaken. But I never think you can do enough on this. I, I, I think that our place in the world is constantly evolving, and if you look back through history and you see, you know, in times we had very close relationships and common citizenship with the Danes, the Norwegians, the Dutch, the French, the English, the Irish. This is a constantly evolving field, but I do think there's an awful lot more you can be doing. And I think that the Scottish government needs to continue to invest in places like Scotland House, not just in Brussels, but also, say, in Copenhagen, Washington, Beijing, and Berlin and elsewhere in, in, in the world. That international engagement is invested in, in places like Flanders, Quebec um, and the Faroe Islands. I think we need to up our game a little bit more in, in investing in that. But it's, it's a work in progress. And I think we start from a good place. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. As always, it's been a pleasure thank to have you on. The Steaming, a laudable production for the Scotsman.